You're listening to The Turing Podcast, a production of the Alan Turing Institute, the UK's National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Turing Podcast. Um, I'm Ed Calstry, and today I'm joined by uh, our co-host, Joe Dungate. Uh, Joe, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Ed. How are you? Uh, not too bad. Um, of course, we are still in, well, would you still call this lockdown? Uh, where are we now? We are the 22nd of June, we're recording this one. How would you describe yeah. the current situation? <laughs> I would say it's very unclear. Um, I think technically we are supposed to be in lockdown, but it it, it feels like we're not anymore. Um, and we haven't been yeah. in for a, a week or so. For listeners in the far future, it's 2020 and we are still during the uh, (laughs) (laughs) COVID-19 pandemic. Um, Today we've got uh, another um, COVID-related episode. Um, Specifically, we're talking to Chris Hicks and David Butler, who are postdoctoral researchers at the Alan Turing Institute, whose research focuses on cryptography, security and other related fields. Uh, And we'll be talking to them about their work on what they call Secure ABC, uh, a decentralised platform for uh, uh, issuing and verifying COVID-19 antibody certificates. But before we uh, go to the interview with them, I think we should sort of clarify a bit of the context. Um, So antibodies, Joe, Joe, you're not a scientist. What what are antibodies? (laughs) (laughs) What's your understanding of what an antibody is? So my understanding is an antibody is something that your body has produced to, um, I suppose, protect you from a virus. And you normally get them once you've had a virus before. So I suppose in this context, the big question is, if you get COVID-19, does your body produce antibodies that then mean you can't get it again? Are you then immune? Um, And that's, I suppose, the basis of this technology, really, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, I, I I have a biology degree and I wouldn't have put it any better than you have. So <laughs> there you go. Oh God, pressure off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, the immune system is a complicated thing. And the science, as we understand it at the moment, is that people, as far as I've read, uh, are producing antibodies when they've had um, COVID-19, or at least some of them are. Um, but we don't know 100% whether that confers immunity to the disease, whether that makes them, uh, whether that means that they won't be infected in the future. Although I don't think any there's any evidence either that people have been reinfected. So mm. there's a certain level of uncertainty here. But the, the technology we're talking about today, um, immunity certificates or antibody passports, um, there are a couple of different ways of phrasing it. The idea, generally speaking, is to have a document that shows whether you have those antibodies or not. Um, But we'll get into some of the details with uh, Chris and David. Um, Thanks for listening, everyone. Hi, everyone. Uh, Today I've got uh, Chris Hicks and David Butler here. Uh, Chris, how are you doing in this time of lockdown? Are you safe? Are you okay? I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, I'm safe, well, enjoying the lovely weather. That's good to hear. Uh, David, how about you? 
Yeah, all doing good actually. I'm quite, I'm quite enjoying it. Maybe that's a bit of a controversial opinion, but um, I quite find you know, no commuting, nothing like that. You just get up in, already in your office, get on with things. So I'm quite enjoying it actually. Yeah, I don't yeah, know I think... any person <laughs> to yeah not miss their commute. Yeah, you're you're certainly not the only one. I think we're 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 a part of the luxury laptop class nowadays, aren't we? <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's yeah the point where where it's dividing society. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we we've uh, we'll we'll have recorded an intro with uh, both uh, introducing both of you before this. Um, but essentially, yeah, today we'll be chatting about uh, Secure ABC, your decentralized privacy preserving system for issuing and verifying COVID-19 antibody certificates. Um, I'll kick off with, um, uh, yeah, just uh, so your paper talks about the concepts of so-called immunity passports or, quote, risk-free certificates. Um, can you first explain uh, what the general idea of these things is? Um, I'll, which of you shall I go to first? Let's go to Chris first. Yeah, okay. So I think that the idea is uh, in the name, at least in our system. So it's simply uh, some sort of certification or proof of, in, in the case of an antibody certificate, an antibody test result. But more generally, what we're, what we're talking about and what we're interested in is the correlates of protection for COVID-19. That could be antibodies or antigens or T-cells. But essentially, the idea is that there would be some tests performed by a doctor and that upon the result of that test, you would be issued some sort of certification uh, that you could use to demonstrate that, that you have that particular outcome. So at the moment, um, do any such certificates exist in the world? So these are, there's a lot of interest in immunity certificates for, for COVID-19. There's a lot of governments around the world uh, at least talking about it on a policy level. Uh, mm. Estonia are trialling this. So they have a non-governmental organisation called Back to Work, uh, working with a few startups. Uh, Chile are actually implementing this, although I've not heard much about that since last month. And I think PwC are working in Spain as well on, on trialling these things. So there's there's not um, I've not seen any any concrete complete implementation with any results on efficacy or anything like that yet. But there's a lot of early signs that these things are being you know, actively sort of tested at the moment. But but I think what we might see is that they're 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 implemented more quickly in in the private sector. Um, you know to get people back to work, as Chris said, uh, because it seems like the barriers to entry there are going to be less. You know, for a government to roll this out, there are many sort of ethical and policy decisions that need to go through, whereas it seems like, you know, for a big consultancy or a big firm with offices, uh, maybe that's a more realistic use case uh, w- with its pros and cons, of course. The, there are also, of course, uh, you know, traditional vaccination certificates. So I was looking earlier today, you know, in order to immigrate to the US, there's a big list of um, vaccinations that one has to have, essentially you know, proving your immunity to a range of diseases so it's not such a novel idea in the in the wider sense of the concept yeah so i guess that's what i was trying to get at with the general concept it it's not something totally new um the idea that you can have a document proving that you are immune to a certain disease um that would give you access um in some ways to getting back to work in the case of covid19 or as i said immigrating uh in the case of um, 
prior diseases. Um, so what are some of the pros and cons that could emerge from uh, a national government? Well, actually, David just mentioned uh, private sector, but um, yeah, what are some of the pros and cons of either the government or companies uh, adopting this kind of thing for COVID-19? Um, so I think I think that the pros and cons, you know, at least in, in the literature, there's been this sort of big debate about it. But the, the obvious big pro is this uh, this idea that we can stop the spread of the virus. You know, this sort of big global um, problem that we're, that we're dealing with currently. So how do we do this? Well, if we only let people that we think are immune or are not carrying it or have some attribute that means they're not going to spread it, whatever the medics determine this attribute to be, if only those people are allowed out, then then fantastic, the virus isn't going to spread. Uh, but the issue, like the immediate con here, is that it's sort of discriminatory, right? That those those with this immunity, you know, we've got this new phrase, immunoprivilege. Those with immunity are allowed to access the post-lockdown world. You know, they're sort of essentially allowed more freedom. And those without um, without immunity or whatever this exact attribute is that the medics will come up with have to sit at home and can't do anything. So immediately, you sort of got the pros and cons there. Um, I think just to give a bit of context in our work, we're trying to um, not only come up when we'll talk about the system later, I guess, but not only come up with a way to sort of do these certificates, but also maybe some case studies behind how we're actually uh, they could be implemented. So, for example, um, one of the big cons is that it restricts access that people have. Um, and this is discriminatory. This is maybe not a good idea, but it would allow the shop or the tube uh, station to monitor how much risk has come in. You know, they could look at the ratio of immune people to non-immune people, perhaps, or um, a situation that, that that might be deemed appropriate is delivery drivers. If delivery drivers um, are delivering to vulnerable people, um, you know, the shop knows if they're delivering to a vulnerable person and we only let a delivery driver who has got an immunity certificate actually deliver to that person. So it's kind of using these things to um, really target specific areas in order for us to help um, control the spread of, spread of the disease while mitigating this risk that, you know, while mitigating this discrimination, which I think everybody appreciates is a big, big factor here. Um, I guess, I guess maybe one other con quickly before uh, maybe Chris has some things to, things to add. Uh, the science is changing a lot. You know, we already touched upon there, there are certificates for disease, for diseases already. You have a yellow, a yellow fever certificate, for example. But the fact is here, that, that we know that if you're vaccinated against yellow fever, it, it's nearly 100% guaranteed that you're safe. Here, the science is constantly changing. So that, I think that's why, probably one of the biggest cons here, why they're so controversial. Do you think as well, you know, if, if something was introduced like this, you'd have people that would deliberately try and get COVID-19 in order to, you know, acquire one of these kind of passports? Well, well, well exactly, As a potential. Yeah. So, so it's this, it's this kind of, you know, we're, we're not immunologists or, um, or, yeah. or medics, but, but it's this idea that if I get a disease, you know, am I then immune to it? I think this is the general uh, principle people seem to understand. Mm. And I, I, really, I don't know if this is true or not, really. Uh, but yeah, it, it seems that if I'm going to go back to work, I have to become immune. And if one way to become immune is to go out and get this disease and I have to go and work, it, it may seem logical for me to, to go and try and get this disease, uh, which obviously... Well, it doesn't appear to be a, a great solution to things. Yeah, that's definitely a, a bad incentive right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. with pubs right. reopening potentially this week, I mean, everyone likes to go to the pub, don't they? If, you know, restaurants and kind of more leisure, I don't know, bodies start 
you know applying this thing I don't know people are quite keen Absolutely. to get back to normal life or whatever that is so well I, I mean I remember people saying right at the start of the pandemic uh, I definitely had at least one friend say oh I just want to get it I want to get it over and done with right um, and I think now that lots of people have died sadly I think people are less inclined to think that but yeah I mean if there's this benefit of oh now I can go to the pub with my with my immunity certificate but no I think some of the more concrete examples that David was mentioning um like the uh, delivery drivers that sounds like some of the one of the more interesting use cases um then perhaps you could I, I think there are some other use cases you highlighted in your paper um was was bus drivers one of them as well or people going on the bus yeah so i think i think in general what what we're talking about here is any kind of situation where it might be interesting to monitor uh what what percentage of people have have entered a service you know whether that be a bus or a train or a shop um just to see what the ratio is so so have lots of immune people gone in then we don't need to worry too much or actually did we have a spike over the last hour of non-immune people then should we clean the shop or you know Take, take some other actions. So how can we use this information to help inform um, help inform mm. the service providers about what, what they should do? Go on, Chris. No, just, there's kind of this contention in, in this work where the more useful these, these certificates are in terms of discriminating in, in what you can and can't do, and in some senses their usefulness in perhaps preventing the spread of the disease, you know, it also makes them more valuable, um, as you say, in terms of modifying people's behaviour to want to to get it. Because, of course, you know, delivering food to vulnerable people sounds uh, like a very noble thing, but it's also a job for somebody, a source of income. And if people get desperate in a in a you know a climate of unemployment, you could still imagine negative behavioural consequences from that. But we certainly tried to illustrate that there could be some good use cases where um, that where the use of immunity certificates could be necessary and proportionate, um, perhaps not necessarily restricting access, but as David said, just being used to actually measure the sort of aggregate uh, risk that could be associated with certain areas or public transport routes. Yeah, perhaps um, monitoring um, things is yeah one of the more beneficial angles to it rather than granting or preventing access in in that sense that certainly sounds like that avoids most of the cons um okay well so let's uh let's go now to a bit of what you yourselves have worked on um so tell us a bit about your secure abc antibody certificate scheme how it works uh and in particular how healthcare providers, service providers and users would uh, interact with one another? Yeah, so it's kind of a a bolt on, I suppose, for the sort of traditional perhaps vaccination or medical test scenario. So the idea is that you would go to your doctor and you'd have a a test perhaps for antibodies uh, to COVID-19. And then if you get a positive test result, uh, you'd be asked to provide a passport photograph uh, to your to your doctor to your healthcare provider and they would take they would, they would generate a unique identity for your certificate number and they would digitally sign that along with your photograph uh, name and an expiry date and they'd provide that to you you could then go into that download that certificate as a QR code either as an app to show on your on your phone or, or actually print it off on a piece of paper 
So, so one of the key things that we were trying to tackle with this work was this idea of digital exclusion. So we wanted to make sure that regardless of whether or not people had access to technology, they would, they would still be able to use this. Um, so then either using your paper-based or app-based uh, QR code um, certificate, you, you would, you would uh, go to a service provider. So this could be you're trying to get on the tube or you're a delivery driver and you, you, you want to demonstrate that you have immunity in order so you get allocated to vulnerable customers. Uh, the verifier would scan your, your QR code and then they would verify the signature. So that's a cryptographic signature from your healthcare provider. They would uh, see the photograph that was included in that. They'd verify, of course, your likeness. And then they'd also check that the certificate hasn't been revoked. And so these unique certificate identity numbers that are included in each certificate, um, the, the healthcare provider maintains a, a list of those and essentially distributes revoked uh, certificate numbers to the verifiers so that, um, so that they can be revoked. And that, in that sense, we actually mimicked some work that's been done on the German electronic identity system uh, where, they, where, they, where they have it decentralized and it, it can be quite challenging to get revocation when you don't have a central authority with which to check whether or not a credential is, is currently valid or not. Um, uh, one of my questions was going to be about the decentralised design and the advantages and disadvantages of that. Um, I think bef- just before we get to that, um, you mentioned the QR codes that there. So just for people who aren't fully aware, I, I mean, I think I've used QR codes for things like gig tickets before <laughs> um so what what exactly are qr codes and how, how would they be used in this context and what's their general usage i suppose fundamentally they're a, a technology for encoding digital information visually um in a in a barcode type structure we, we don't actually uh, we use qr codes as an interesting kind of uh, study to show that it's possible but really any sort of uh, visual technology for for, for encoding uh, information will be fine um it's i, I think most people recognize them we, we we pick them because they're relatively ubiquitous still uh, and they have been used in other contexts during this pandemic so china used a system of qr codes to try to monitor uh, which areas were being accessed by people right right so and i think i'm I just think, thinking go on david sorry just, just, just to point out it's it's sort of important here because then we can have paper-based and um digital yes. systems um so we don't need kind of two digital systems to talk to each other you know it's assumed perhaps that the service provider has some scanner you know that they're, they're able to scan a qr code but it doesn't matter if that qr code is on my mobile or on a piece of paper or on a, a little um you know like driving license type certificate thing so I think, I think that's also one sort of benefit of these these QR codes that they're sort of agnostic in terms of that 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 digital respect or paper respect. Right. Yeah. Then it'd be very much um, if this became the norm, if uh, antibody certificates became adopted, then it wouldn't be too much of a burden on the person who was trying to show that they had the certificate to to sort of carry it on them. It would either be a file on their phone or it would be a printed piece of paper with, just with that code. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so uh, yeah. Sorry. Get so back to my other question, which was yeah, decentralization. Um, how what? How does this uh, factor into secure ABC? Uh, at, a, at a really high level, uh, and in a nutshell, what we were trying to accomplish is to mimic the privacy of traditional um, paper-based identity documents, like a driver's license, 
where when I show my driver's license in a supermarket, the issuer doesn't learn that I've used my identity. And, and we replicate this same setup where the healthcare provider does not learn each time that you, you demonstrate your, your, uh, your antibody test results. However, I think Chris touched upon it earlier, this idea of revocation is actually it gets very hard to do unless you have some type of central um, authority. So I guess implicitly we're assuming there's a list of um, service providers that are allowed to check certificates, for example, um, and then we can learn which ones are revoked. So let, let's say one week you're allowed to go to pubs and then one week you're not allowed to go to pubs. Suddenly, you know, so pubs shouldn't be able to check the certificates. That should be a property of the system as well. Mm. I'm not sure if you already touched on this, but, you know, would there be a kind of renewal process for the certificate, you know, or kind of, yeah, something like that, I suppose. So, so I, so I guess um, this has to depend upon, on the science. So, so mm. we, we currently don't know, don't know this really. Um, so yeah, we imagine these certificates will have fairly short um, shelf lives exactly to put a figure on it. I, I don't think I'd really want to, but yeah. Chris, do you want to have a guess? I don't know. Well, so, so <laughs> Chile, Chile have opted for three months. Okay, so quite short. In, in what they're calling risk-free certificates. There was a study that came out with a very small cohort cohort size out of China um, where, um, sorry, <laughs> slightly lost the thread there. Um, <laughs> sorry. There was a cohort out of China where uh, it was about two months. It was certain that they could see antibodies in this case in, in patients and that there was an implied immunity for at least that duration. And then with SARS, we saw, uh, I think, two to three years was kind of the expected immunity period. The important thing is that because we have quite efficient revocation, we can fundamentally, if the science changes, or indeed, even if we just have a bad, te- a bad batch of tests, we can revoke all of those certificates and, and deny them from being useful. Okay. So it's just to clarify then, so the, the revocation aspect is, yeah, so in case the science changes and those certificates which have been issued are now, we think, probably invalid for one reason or another, so you're saying that having a central authority does make that easier rather than the decentralized system? Uh, yeah, so it, it's easy to, uh, if you had a centralized list of valid certificate identities. So so in a centralized system, we, we could imagine that we just have one body that is responsible for determining whether or not people have a valid antibody test and when I go to a service provider, I go to my boss and I want to show them my antibody test result. They just query a server. You know, they, they send a string with my certificate identity number on it and they get back a yes, no response. And that's similar to, so, so India has a, a, an identity framework uh, that, that works in just this way. So you, you, you demonstrate who you are and it's checked centrally and the response is given back to the verifier. Um, it's easy to do revocation because I can just delete people from that central list. It's in one place and the latency is extremely short. I don't have to wait any duration before removing somebody from that list. But in a decentralized system where the kind of, uh, you know, when and where you use your certificate is down to the user, it's much harder to do that um, uh, with a short latency and in a privacy preserving way. I think that's the key that this, this central sort of idea is still happening in a privacy preserving way because it's a very it's a very simple thing um, that, that we're doing here really. 
the, the, the other way of doing this that, that, that we've seen in the literature is to use a blockchain, probably. So you could also put these certificate values in a blockchain, and then you can claim that because the blockchain is decentralized, that you don't suffer from, from the same issues. But there's still fundamentally a need to check each identity upon a blockchain every time that you, you validate somebody's certificate. Uh, and we think that there's a privacy risk associated with that. So how 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 do we get around the privacy risks then? What are the steps that can be made to to uh, to avoid those? The, the, I think the main thing is by by just decentralising away from the healthcare provider or the issuer. It could be right. the government. You obviously you ensure then that each time you use your certificate. There isn't some central authority that learns of your of its usage. I think that's probably the worst case scenario. It's because if, if if perhaps these became used for entering shops uh, in order that they could determine how many people could safely be inside the shop. Let's say, I wouldn't like the government to know every time that I went to a shop and which shop it was and when I went there. So the the main decentralization element is just to to do away with that. And and because we cryptographically sign the credential, we use very simple cryptography. Really, it's just that I that 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 um, the authenticity of my credential can be verified without having the issuer online in that transaction. Then the only difficulty is revocation. But this can be solved relatively simply by just distributing lists of revoked certificates to all of the verifiers. And these okay. revoked certificates have, have, well, all the certificates have these IDs that are essentially random. So you don't really learn, in layman's terms, you don't really learn anything about the certificate from, from the ID that it has. Okay, yeah. So, so it makes sense. So, so the, the reason you've gone for the decentralised approach is, yeah, the, for privacy reasons. So the issuer, e.g. the government or, or the NHS, I guess, um, doesn't know whenever some individual has use their certificate for whatever purpose it's going to be used for. Um, okay, so that's really interesting. Um, I, I wonder if, um, do you have uh, any opinions at all on, I know this is a little bit of a tangent, but the, the other technology that's in the news at the moment is the uh, contact tracing system. And that there seems to be a, a similar um, argument at play here for decentralised versus centralised systems. There's... I think I'm right in saying, correct me if I'm wrong, that the Google slash Apple version is decentralized. The version that was the NHS version that's now been rejected was centralized. And perhaps some other countries have done a similar thing. Um, Do either of you have an opinion on that or want to just say anything about it? So, I mean, I, I'm happy to, to, to air my thoughts, but I think it, it needs to be you know, said that the literature on this is changing so quickly. So the likelihood of, of what we say today being exactly correct tomorrow yeah. is, <laughs> is pretty, um, it, you know, is, is unlikely. I, I think there are slight differences in the situations here because in, in, in the context of contact tracing, um, there's lots of communication going on between users. So, so the, the, whole, the thing that people are worried about is, is this creating this social graph. So basically when I... When I interact with you, Ed, you know, and when I interact with everyone else, can, can the government or can some adversary create this graph? And this is, yeah, this is this is not desirable. Um, and we've immediately taken that out of our system by having this decentralised thing. And because the central, you know, the idea, unless a, unless the service provider is noting down, oh, Ed was wearing a red T-shirt today, and kind of physically linking you in some way, it, it's no, it, you know, it's very hard for them to link you to 
a, a particular transaction. Um, so I guess that's my sort of two pennies worth on that. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think the situations are subtly different. I, yeah, I, I certainly think that, that, that the situation we have with immunity passports is, is different to the one with contact tracing. I think the, the, there is a reasonable motivation for centralization in contact tracing, which is that if you're trying to stop the spread of COVID-19, it's very useful for epidemiologists to have a big graph of uh, the spread of the infection, of who came into contact with who. It's really, really useful information. And I think that's why there has been a debate at all. Uh, however, with immunity passports, it's not evident that it would be useful for the government to learn when and, and, and why I'm going to a certain shop or going on a certain tube line. So I think that we can essentially eliminate that and, and not have to get roped into the debate um, that's, that, that's quite heated with, with contact tracing. I, I guess it's this idea that... Um the technique should only be used for combating COVID and not, it shouldn't have these extra kind of features that possibly the government could misuse. So that, I guess that's the sort of central heart of, you know, again, we're not ethicists, but that's a central heart of the ethics debate here. Um, you know, we want to build technology that tackles the, the, the problem at hand and doesn't have unintended consequences. And I don't think it's quite as obvious how immunity passports in this respect, there are lots of other cons, you know, um, things that we have to mitigate, but in this respect, doesn't doesn't really um, doesn't really apply. Okay, cool. Um, so, if the UK decided to implement secure ABC tomorrow, your version of the immunity passports, what would be the things that would need to happen to make it work, and what would the major obstacles be? Ooh, well, the short <laughs> answer is lots. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I think. I think I think maybe if we take a step back here to sort of provide our motivation for this work. Um, sure, go ahead. And then it, then it might become clear. So so we appreciate that lockdown is bad, and that then governments are considering any way to try and alleviate this sort of this sort of mess that we're in. Immunity passports are, are set to be one possible way that we can get out of this situation. Um, there were then lot, there are lots of um, commercial solutions to offer these things, but the academic literature around it is relatively small, or at least was when we started this work. So our main motivation was to do a sort of academic analysis and produce a, a simple system that allows us demonstrates that we can how we can do this securely, so that if somebody wants to implement this, we can say, look here, we, we've thought about this problem. Here's a solution. And now we did this proof of concept implementation. But I mean, scaling this up, I mean, Chris probably has some other thoughts on this, but the idea of it being ready to go soon is it is not, I don't think, realistic. Um, I, I think that the technology to do this is very straightforward. We've not used any complicated cryptography. We've used a very, very simple, uh, straightforward public key digital signatures. Um, probably the main thing that would be needed is a good legal framework saying how these are, can be used We've had internal discussions about whether or not maybe immunity status, you know, your immunity would become a protected status in the same way as you know, age, race or religion. Um, the, the technology alone is, is very susceptible to, to bad policy. And that's why we were motivated to provide some, some use cases where you could, you could actually demonstrate any sort of proportional or necessary use for these things. So that would be my number one. I don't think there's a technical obstacle to deploying secure ABC on a national scale. 
but I think that there's a lot of ethical and legal um, work that would need to be done beforehand to make sure that nothing that, that it was not misused. Okay, cool. Yeah, so so you, I guess I guess what you're saying, although <laughs> I don't think you meant to say it in this way, is that the your side of it, the the technical side, is not straightforward because I don't want to dismiss your work as, as as simplistic in any way. But it's it 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 works, and you, you you've written a paper describing how it works. But what really needs to be considered now is the the practical implications of of how such a system might work in practice with the law with the, with policies and so on absolutely exactly. yeah. sort of how, how such a system would integrate into society um you know mm-hmm. that's with respect to policy with respect to law um, because you know this is a multifaceted problem that doesn't just revolve around having kind of i don't know inverted commas basic security properties um is it is this um are there any other um things you want to tell us about about the uh the paper you've written and about um, Secure ABC in particular before we uh, conclude and I ask you a fun bonus question. <laughs> so, I mean, the, so, so the, the paper that it, it's still a working paper and um, we've, we've submitted it recently uh, for publication, but we've been looking at, at the idea of whether or not we can technically enforce non-discrimination with regards to immunity certificates by using essentially differential privacy to look at um, whether or not useful statistical aggregates can still be computed without actually uh, revealing any individual's immunity status. It's quite speculative, um, but that's that, that's a kind of hint of some of the other things that we've been looking at in this area. So, what what exactly makes it uh, speculative? Well, what's um... a bit, a bit, because it um, because it's not clear epidemiologically how useful it is to understand these aggregate statistics in small spaces. And so, for example, we you know it becomes there's a there's a trade off between technologies uh, between collectively beneficial techniques or technologies and those that benefit the individual and once you stop talking about aggregate statistics i think that you're really looking at tools for the collective like we might also establish these collective uh, sorry these, these aggregate statistics just by testing people very widely so that we know what the ratios are in certain areas um and so it becomes uh, we, the, the work becomes very dependent on how useful those statistics become once you look at small spaces for example um, you know in a train carriage is it actually useful to understand the proportion of people that could have immunity if it's sufficient that one person that's infectious would infect all of the people without immunity it might not actually be that useful it might be that these are only useful in the discriminatory sense. Um, but that's that's something we're looking at anyway. Cool. And I guess, sorry, sorry just, just to add before you give us our bonus question, which I'm looking forward to. <laughs> um, I, I guess what we've realised in this work is, you know, we, we come from security backgrounds um, or from that sort of standpoint, but, but this work really touches on many, many uh, sort of facets of society, you know, ethics, law. And at the Turin, we found some really cool people to have discussions with this about, 
Um, so hopefully, you know, as this work on goes and potentially if immunity certificates, antibody certificates become uh, more mainstream, uh, we can involve, a, you know, promote a wider discussion. So I guess that's a sort of an advert slightly, but if people want to come and discuss things with us, tell us that our work is good or bad or they don't really care, then that's really good because I think that's the whole one of the motivations of this is that the academic community really needs to have a discussion around this um, to offer solutions or thoughts on how such a process could be deployed if governments decide that um, they want it to be deployed. Um, I think that's really important and was one of the main motivations. And uh, an interesting tangent to this work as well. I, I saw um, earlier about how the UK lost its me- measles-free status, I, I think, in 2018. We were officially measles-free, I think, for about a year based on some data from 2014 to 16. And that, um, a few years ago, sparked uh, questions about whether or not immune, like vaccinations should be mandatory in schools for children. Um, so, so, and at that point, Matt Hancock, the health secretary, kind of just didn't rule it out as, as opposed to expressing any support for the idea. But I think, you know, as a society, we, we're just going to have to grapple with uh, what, what we think the right thing to do is with regards to immunities and, and the rights that, that could be associated with them. Yeah, and I suppose there's a you know, people want to kind of move out of lockdown, they want to kind of move out of this phase relatively quickly or as quickly as possible. So I suppose there's potential dangers of kind of doing something too quickly or not thinking through all the things that you've just spoken about, Dave. So it's really interesting. Yeah, I think, well, actually, that's an interesting question that Joe's raised there, which is, um, given that these kinds of discussions are happening in the midst of the pandemic. I mean, I guess it's been going on for quite a few months now, but is there a danger that we come up with these solutions too fast or yeah, the, the time isn't taken to consider all of the possibilities? Or, or is it in reality um, just a case that if we're talking about uh, each disease is going to be different in the ways that you can possibly be immune to it and so on, and that any deployment of something like immunity certificates or related technologies are going to be quite specific anyway. And so the only time we could come up with a solution is now, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think it's a... Trim- go on, go on. <laughs> uh, well, no, I would just say that as much as it's a risk, it's also an opportunity. Mm. So it's, uh, I've, I've, it's, it's a great opportunity for us to do great things in a short space of time, provided that we get it right. It sort of focuses the mind somewhat, doesn't it, when there's this clear motivation to try to, you know, try to get out of this, this, this sort of mess that we're in. Yeah. yeah and you, you guys have done a really good job of, of highlighting the, uh, the great interdisciplinary nature of the place we work, the Alan Turing Institute, so... <laughs> so just th- thumbs up to the institute there um, <laughs> um, all right guys thanks very much for coming on the podcast um before i let you go i'm going to ask you a completely unrelated question um what we're doing in some of our most recent episode is yeah providing a fun bonus question for people to grapple with so the question is so you're, you guys are used to, or, you know, your security people, but you're used to, as we've discussed today, talking about the ethical implications of security and privacy-related technologies. Uh, but allow, allow me to ask you something completely different. 
if the technology from Jurassic Park turned out to be real, should we do it? Should we clone T Rex? <laughs> so I have to state here, I've never watched Jurassic Park, but so so we're here. Oh, we're talking about we're we're, to, we're talking <laughs> about like making dinosaurs. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, cloning dinosaurs. <laughs> It's an enthusiastic. On, <laughs> it's an enthusiastic yes from me. Uh, even with only a, a vague recollection of the film, I think it would be really cool to have a dinosaur and to uh, to you know study it in its in its living form. Um, yeah, I think if we could control the amount of cloning, it'd be quite good fun. But it could uh, could cause some serious problems. Maybe maybe the coronavirus wouldn't be the major problem after that. Yeah. The distraction that everyone needs right now is dinosaurs. <laughs> 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 yeah yes there is there are definitely some downsides to it but um okay you're both being quite enthusiastic about it that's good <laughs> it's a sm- definitely a smaller problem it would present fewer problems than coronavirus i think i think that's fair to say <laughs> uh, it, all right it guys strange strange timing as well because I, I thought it was a virus that wiped out the dinosaurs in the first place I could correct. be wrong. I, th- I thought that was one of the... <laughs> well, the, the, Chris, the it's, because they didn't, it's because they didn't have uh, secure ABC to help them yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have a chance. <laughs> I've not heard that before. I mean, as far as I'm aware, most people, most paleontologists agree that it's the, it was the meteor impact. Um, I've never heard of a virus... <laughs> Well, <laughs> then clearly that's just something that's I, I've entirely fabricated on the spot. So let's just <laughs> forget about that hypothesis. Yeah. So immersed in the current pandemic, can't think of anything else. <laughs> think, uh, what, what else could it possibly be that kills them? That's what's killing us. So, <laughs> All right. Um, on that note, thanks very much for coming on the podcast, guys. And we'll leave it there. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Ed. Oh, actually, before you go, let me ask, um, are either of you online, do you have Twitter accounts? Where can people follow your work? Yeah, so we're, we're both on Twitter. Um, do you want me to yeah. give the hashtag? Or... Yeah, go on, what's I have no handle? idea what my Twitter handle is. <laughs> <laughs> Given that I have about three followers, maybe we can increase my followers to get over the 10 mark. Yeah, yeah. I think mine's at Hixie, which is spelt, unfortunately, in a way that I have to spell it out so h-k-s-c-y on twitter and david mine is at dave t butler but there's no e in the dave i don't know why probably that one was taken i only made this a few days ago i have currently have i'm currently following 10 people and i have 12 followers that's a good ratio that is a good ratio You'll have at least thirteen after this. I heard it was quite. Co- I heard it was quite cool to uh, for really famous people to only follow one person. So maybe that's what I'll do. Maybe I'll reduce my <laughs> followers, make it only one. <laughs> to learn more about the work going on at the Alan Turing Institute, visit our website at turing.ac.uk. To get in touch with the podcast team, if you have any questions or suggestions, email us at podcast at turing.ac.uk. Music for this episode was provided by Jamin Sun. You can listen to his latest releases at jaminsun.bandcamp.com. The Turing Podcast is hosted by Ed Calstry, Tarek Allen, Ben Walden, Effie Dennis, and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute. <laughs>